Good morning. Welcome back from spring break. My name is Becky Horse. One of my jobs here is to coordinate the convocation program. As you walked in, most of you received a calendar, a Go Green calendar. I'm also a member of the Ecological Stewardship Committee on campus, and we've declared March Go Green Month. And we developed this calendar on recycled paper. You can use the back again of events and tips, and I'd like to just highlight three of them. The first one is today's convocation, the first event, March 2nd, a, con a convocation on climate change and faith. Now, Bob Yoder, our campus minister, is going to do this convocation. He's usually just up here on Fridays when we have chapel, but today is convocation. It's not a worship service. It's just a presentation. But Bob is doing the presentation because he was invited by former Vice President Al Gore to come to a special training on using inconvenient truth information from a faith-based perspective. He'll tell you more about that. Two more highlights. Wednesday, March 4th at 4 o'clock, an interdisciplinary forum. Anybody who's not in choir and can come to that, please do. Three professors will respond to some ideas by Bill McKibben's book, Deep Economy. Bill McKibben is coming to campus March 11. He's probably the foremost sustainable economist in the U.S. today, and he's got some controversial ideas. So professors Carl Helrich, Vic Koop, and Carolyn Truck-Shank will be responding to some of his ideas at this forum on Wednesday the 4th. The third highlight, first day of spring, March 20th, on Friday, is Don't Drive Day. We'd like the entire campus, faculty, staff, and students, to drive as little as possible, maybe not at all, on that day, and see how many miles we can not drive. Okay? Go ahead, use this calendar as you'd like, color it, make up more events of your own, and get back your feedback to any of the people whose names are listed on the bottom. And now help me welcome Bob Yoder, Convocation Thank you. Welcome back from spring break as well. Those of us who stayed in Goshen experienced good, balmy, 15, 20 degree weather. It was awesome. Better than any beach you would imagine. Uh, now approaching uh, Lunar Sunrise. And uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth. And the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. This was from the first Apollo mission to the moon in 1968. And these were the first words that they transmitted back to the United States. And these were the first image that was taken of this blue marble, the earth that we see. Started to give us human beings a new reality and a new perspective of what the earth is. We hadn't had that glimpse of it before. This was another um, iconic image, one of a kind image from 1972 of a later Apollo mission. It just so happened that the, as the capsule was looking at the earth, taking a picture, the sun was directly behind them and illuminated the full diameter of the earth. Um, and again, there haven't been other pictures taken uh, like that. My hope today 
is that you will grow in your understanding of global warming, uh, the science, the issues, those kinds of things, um, a desire to lessen your carbon footprint, and also to consider um, these things through a matter of, of a lens of faith, which is one of the reasons why I got involved in this. On December 1, 2008, in Mennonite Weekly Review, which is an inter-Mennonite, inter-Anabaptist um, uh, weekly uh, newsletter or newspaper, um, there was uh, this article released from Goshen News uh, Press. Um, Goshen faculty speak on climate change. It was a news release about the training that Paul Sturry and I had recently undergone. A few weeks later, this is what appeared in a viewpoint, which is kind of a letter to the editor. I'm appalled to learn that the church is embracing the propaganda spewed by Al Gore and his horde. To think that people can affect the climate to any measurable degree over the long term is to attempt equality with God. The geological and biological evidence shows climate change is natural and dramatic. For example, continental glaciers have advanced as far south as present day Kansas City and retreated. And I can guarantee that human activities and carbon footprints did not affect that at all. The hysteria about climate change does have some benefits. Environmental action groups are big business and this is the perfect cause to boost memberships and revenue. Plus, this is the greatest advertising opportunity for manufacturers since they took over Christmas as they repackaged their products in green labels. And finally, Al Gore is the Jim Jones of the 21st century. The poison he would have us drink is the diversion of attention and resources trying to solve a non-solvable non-problem. Our resources could be much better spent addressing poverty, starvation, genocide, aggression, financial injustice, the trafficking of people and illness. We need to be kind to Mother Earth, but to invite the climate change cult into the church is a sin. This is the work that I'm about these days. And so why do I, uh, Bob Yoder, campus pastor at Goshen College, why do I speak? Why do I care? Well, first, I am a pastor, an ordained pastor in the Mennonite Church. And for me, this is a matter of faith. And a number of the issues that were addressed in the last paragraph are reasons why I am concerned and why I am involved to help bring about awareness. Second, I'm a father of Josiah and Mira. And I care very much about the kind of planet they will be living in down the road as they're going to be living hopefully longer than me. And third, I'm not sure. I'm not an expert in this field at all. But I do feel led by God at this time in my life to be speaking and raising awareness um, about these things. And so um, Paul Sturry and I um, had been invited by the Climate Project, which is a nonprofit organization associated with uh, former Vice President Al Gore, um, and in his work, The Inconvenient Truth, um, invited to be part of a, a first-ever faith-based training. He has trained 2,500 people over the last couple, um, couple of years to do this kind of presentation or to do the presentation that was in his film. And he had realized that there was a group of people that they were missing, and that was the faith community. So they had intentionally sought out 140 different faith leaders from across the U.S., um, to come to this training uh, to then work at it from a faith lens and perspective. And so it was out of that is what Paul and I were invited to go to and, um, and took in in October. This is the atmosphere. And the atmosphere is about one one-thousandth of a diameter of the Earth. Now, many of you are going to know the basics of global warming. And I just want to go through this and highlight it. As you know, the sun sends its radiating rays to us here on the Earth which is nice, warms us up, 
at least if you're not in Goshen during spring break. And then some of the radiation bounces back into outer space, which is a good thing. Some of it gets trapped by the atmosphere and comes back again. And again, it warms us up. And that's a good thing. But let's take a look at a tale of two planets. First, we have Earth and Venus, comparable sizes. And both planets have about the same amount of carbon on their planets. One big difference is that in Earth, most of the carbon currently is underground. In Venus, it's in the atmosphere. And so when we take a, a, a look at the atmospheres of, of Earth and Venus, we see that Earth is that size and Venus is a little bit thicker. Um, the average temperature on the Earth is 59 degrees. On Venus, it's 855 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, Venus is a bit closer to Earth and so we, or to the Sun, and so we might think, well, you know, that warms it up, which might be true somewhat. Mercury, however, um, is much closer to the Sun, and it's at a cool 333 degrees Fahrenheit. So there's a bit of a difference as we think about where our carbon is at. Getting back to here on Earth, we are polluting the atmosphere. We're putting a lot of carbon from the ground up into the sky and into the air. And so then what happens is that thin layer of atmosphere starts to thicken up because there is stuff in there. And then more of the radiation that had been bouncing back into outer space comes back to Earth and warms us up. This graph is a graph looking at the last 140 years or so in terms of change of temperature on the Earth. And this is back to when they started to measure temperature change on, or temperature on Earth. So basically, as we look back at the last 140 years, in terms of change of temperature, we're just getting warmer and warmer in terms of recent times. That was one way to explain global warming. This global is another way warming. to explain or global warming. None like it hot! <laughs> you're probably wondering why your ice cream went away. Well, Susie, the culprit isn't foreigners, it's global warming. Global wapu? Yeah. Meet Mr. Sunbeam. He comes all the way from the sun to visit Earth. Hello, Earth. Just popping in to brighten your day. La, 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 la. And now, I'll be on my way. Not so fast, Sunbeam. We're greenhouse gases. You ain't going nowhere. Pretty soon, Earth is chock full of sunbeams. They're rotting corpses heating our atmosphere. <laughs> How do we get rid of the greenhouse gases? Fortunately, our handsomest politicians came up with a cheap, last-minute way to combat global warming. Ever since 2063, we simply drop a giant ice cube into the ocean every now and then. Of course, since the greenhouse gases are still building up, it takes more and more ice each time. Thus, solving the problem once and for all. But once and for all! That's another way of looking at uh, global warming. Um, this is a map of the Earth, as you all well know. If you take a look at the southern hemisphere, there's this amount of land mass. The northern, a lot more land mass. So keep that in mind as we look at, at this um, image here. This is an image of the Earth breathing, if you will. It's breathing in carbon dioxide and 
spitting out oxygen. Now, you'll notice this little red line here, um, and it'll start to, it's jagged, up and down. It wasn't until the late 1950s is when they started to calculate the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And this is what they were finding. It was going up and down. The reason it peaks, that is during the um, winter time, when the foliage of the northern hemisphere is off, the trees, like it is now, carbon dioxide levels are much higher then because the foliage and vegetation isn't breathing in the carbon dioxide. And then in the summer months during, during the northern hemisphere, it drops down. So that accounts for the jagged up and down. But overall, since the late 1950s, we see this trend that they are just seeing an increase of carbon dioxide levels into our atmosphere. And it continues on. One of the things that happens then is we have melting glaciers. This is an image of Glacier National Park, 1900 to 1998. And so this is something scientists and people are seeing as well in both polar caps. Glaciers coming off, lopping off, falling into the ocean. Here's another glacier in Alaska, 1914 to 2004. Peru, 78 to more recent times. Another one in Peru, 1980, to more recent times. Argentina, a postcard from the Swiss Alps in 1910. Another postcard, 1906. Italy. And as glaciers recede, it uncovers some things. And so this is a body that was uncovered that is uh, thought to be about 5,300 years old. As these um, ice caps melt, there's some natural melting that goes on, and it's a water source for people. And so here you see La Paz, Bolivia, where um, this city is dependent on the water that comes off of, uh, off of the ice cap there. This is an image of Nepal in the Himalayas today. If we look at the Himalaya glaciers, it's a water source for seven major rivers in that region, China and India and so forth. It supplies 40% of the world's population, or 40% of the world's population depends on that water. And so if we fast forward ahead of time and think at some point, if there wasn't those ice caps and glaciers um, on, those, on the Himalayas, what would happen? Kilimanjaro, another image, 1970 to 2000, and then even more recent. This is scientist Lonnie Thompson, who's a professor at Ohio State University who studies glaciers. And here he's standing by the last sliver of a particular glacier that was on Kilimanjaro. One of the things that they do is they drill these um, borings down into the glaciers. And as they do that, they're able to figure out air temperature and carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide level in a given year. And just like in the rings of a tree trunk, when you can count how old the tree is, so they can do that with, uh, with glaciers when they drill down, because everything is in layers. And so what they've looked at in the last 1,000 years is this image in terms of temperature and temperature change in the northern hemisphere. Going back to 1000 AD up until recent times, this is the pattern. But what you see here in more recent decades is that it has spiked up. Um, you also don't really see any kind of natural cycle that goes on. 
If we take that same image and look at temperature, we also see that carbon dioxide concentrations also um, mirror that image as well. Now these same scientists and other scientists go to the Antarctica where the glaciers are much, much higher and much, much uh, deeper, 700-800 feet. And they're able to go back even to much more, uh, much more in time. And so for this particular um, uh, graph, they go back 800,000 years. And something that to look at here is the blue represents carbon dioxide uh, concentration. And pay attention to the number of 300. Um, it's not gone above that. And again, we also see temperature, which also mirrors it. Sometimes the temperature might peak up and then carbon dioxide follows or, or vice versa. But what I want you to, to take a look at is last year's concentration level reached 387. And if we project ahead, if we continue life as we currently are doing, business as usual, scientists are projecting that it could reach up to about 600 or so. And then we can imagine what might happen with, with temperature. The 10 hottest years on record, um, nine of them have occurred in the last 10 years, um, minus 2008. This data didn't include 2008. When we look at the United States, July 2005 to 2006 was the hottest or the warmest um, on record in terms of the United States, of the 48 states. And New Orleans um, also was a recipient of some of that warmth. And we remember back, there was some intense hurricanes in the summer of 2005. Hurricane Emily, Hurricane Dennis, um, did a nasty business or uh, onto the oil rig business. Some of them came floating ashore or into bridges. July 31, 2005, Massachusetts Institute of Technology reported this as part of their study. Major storms spinning in both the Atlantic and the Pacific since the 1970s have increased in duration and intensity by about 50%. That was July 31. And as they've studied, as water temperature increases there in the oceans, so does wind velocity and so does storm moisture content. And so we look back, less than one month after that MIT study, we had Hurricane Katrina that came, and it started in the, in the South Atlantic, came across Florida, hit the warm waters of the Caribbean, and really built up intensity, because the waters are pretty warm, and landed there in New Orleans. And we remember some of the images of that time, and some of the consequences. And most recently, again, just last fall, New Orleans, a part of New Orleans was, uh, was also underwater from some other hurricanes. Um, that's, later that uh, September of 2005, Hurricane Rita also slammed into the Gulf Coast. And then in October we had Hurricane Wilma, which was the strongest Atlantic hurricane ever observed. And soon after that, um, the folks who named the hurricanes ran out of letters in the English alphabet, and they went to the Greek alphabet. Now, for some odd, strange reason, they stopped at W, and being a Yoder, I think they could have at least named it Hurricane Yoder as the next one. But they've never gone that far, and so they actually went into the Greek alphabet, and they uh, went into it six letters. But last September, last fall, we had Gustav came across Haiti and did a lot of damage, changed some of the shoreline. And then a little bit later, we had Hurricane Ike, and again, came across Haiti and slammed into Texas. Here's the storm surge coming in changing some of the landscape that was there. 
Galveston, Crystal Beach. And the storm surge even pushed up coffins and vaults out of a cemetery. And again, changing the coastline. And so this house was built very solid. But if you're a real estate agent wanting to sell it, uh, the thought of location, location, location might uh, make you not want to buy it. It also um, hit downtown Houston and suffered some damage. And there was reports of, uh, of some desks come flying out of, out of windows. If we look back at the last um, century, it's been a time of weather-related disasters ranging from drought to floods to hurricanes to tornadoes and so forth. This graph is just showing that there have been four times more weather-related disasters in the last 25 or 30 years than the previous 45 or 70 years. Um, now, to keep in mind here, this is looking at weather-related disasters. And it's important to remember, the point of this is not to say that global warming is the cause for all of this. It's a contributing factor. There's a number of different factors as we look at this graph. But one thing to look at, the yellow represents the world and the red represents the United States. And so we've suffered quite a bit here in terms of disasters. As we look globally, the number of major flooding events in Europe by decade, we go back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, it's increased. Here in the Americas, see a very similar pattern. Africa, Asia. In Mumbai in 2005, there was 37 inches of rain in 24 hours. That's a lot of rain. And just last spring, last year, um, in Iowa, and some of you may have lived in this, um, where there was nine rivers that had all crested and uh, did this to Cedar Rapids. And then as it came down the Mississippi, it breached the 500-year floodplains quite a bit in a number of different places. If we look over in China, one province might be suffering from a lot of rain and a lot of water, but then the next province over might be suffering from a lot of drought. One of the things that happens with global warming is that water content moisture is evaporated out of the sea or out of the water, but it also gets sucked up out of the, or out of the land as well. And this is a, an illustration of Lake Chad looking at 1963 up until recent times. And this is what has happened to Lake Chad. And there's a lot of consequences um, out of that water. So I asked the question, with such disasters on the domestic and international fronts, will we as a faith community respond to the needs affected by all that happens? And will we have enough resources to work with those demands? Now let's take a look at the North Pole region. This is a picture of a fissure in northern Canada. And it's one of the first times a scientist have ever seen such a thing like that. And it really baffled them. They're wondering, what's going on? This is an image of drunken trees, is what they're called. That in the Arctic region, you have the permafrost. And so as the permafrost starts to melt, the root system isn't, as, isn't what it once was. And so the trees start to tip over. Other things also start to tip over as the permafrost melts. We see buildings, and bridges, and roads buckle. And again, looking at that part of the region, as the um, permafrost starts to melt, the permafrost has a lot of methane trapped in it. And as that methane is released, that's another source of carbon being released into the air. And methane is actually about 23 times more powerful than just simple carbon dioxide in terms of the potency. 
This is an image or a picture of some methane being released that's underneath the lake. And so there were some people out there floating on a boat and they observed this. This is another observation of methane where they just poked it in and uh, can light it up. Don't have to take firewood with you on camping trips. And can be dangerous. If we take a look here at the North Pole region again, this was the polar ice cap in 1980, and this is how it would have been for a long time before that. This is what it looks like today, or in 2007. To put it in perspective, going back to 1980, it's basically the same size as the United States minus Arizona. By 2005, basically everything east of the Mississippi got uh, melted away. Um, if we look at today, or, or in 2007, uh, more melted away. And so basically, you add another eight Midwestern states uh, that size um, had melted away. And so it's causing a lot of interesting times for the animals that live there in that region. They depend on that ice to get to their food source. And there have been reports of cannibalism among polar bears. Um, and there could be some serious danger that these things will not even be able to exist uh, down the road. Now, the polar cap functions much like a mirror and like an air conditioning system for the Earth. As the sun's rays come down and beam onto the polar um, ice cap, a lot of that uh, sun rays are bounced off, which is a good thing, so we don't heat up too much. But as this ice continues to melt, um, more of that radiation is being absorbed there by the water and by that region. And therefore, it's heating up that part of the world um, more and more. If we turn our attention to the South Pole, Take a look at the Antarctic, land of the penguins. In 1978, in, or in Nature magazine, one of the warning signs that a dangerous warming trend is underway in the Antarctica will be the breakup of ice shelves on both coasts. And so let's take a look at one of the ice shelves that is breaking up right now. It's the Larsen Ice Shelf. This radius is about 25 miles in width there and about 150 miles long. This is an image of uh, January 31. A couple of weeks later, that's what we're seeing. A couple of weeks after that, and within about six weeks, that ice, the floating ice on the water, had gone almost all the way back to where land is. It's important to think about sea-based ice and land-based ice. Sea-based ice, demonstrated by that water, um, when it melts, it doesn't raise water level at all. And that's what the North Pole is. It's, sea-based ice, it's ice floating on water. The Antarctica, however, um, it's combined both of land-based and sea-based ice. But when land-based ice melts, then it does increase water level. And if we take a look at the West Antarctic ice sheet, it's comparable size to Greenland, which is also in the North Pole region there. And if we look at, at Greenland, we also see melting going on and these melting pools that are forming, very similar to what was observed in the Antarctica. And water just gushing straight down. And if we look at the seasonal ice melt in Greenland from 1979 up to or 2007, we again see the difference, the red representing what has melted over time. So David King, UK science advisor, says that maps of the world will have to be redrawn if Greenland melts or if more of West Antarctica melts. Again, keeping in mind that land-based ice. This is an artist's image of Florida. 
if it were to melt. And there's a lot of debate in terms of how much will it raise the sea level. Some folks are thinking it could raise the sea level by 20 feet. Again, there's a lot of debate in the scientific community about that. However, there isn't as much debate in terms of that it will raise it some, uh, to some degree. Beijing and Calcutta. And something to keep in mind with this then is population centers. There's a lot of people that live in a lot of cities around uh, the water. And so populations will be displaced if that were to happen. And that's something we need to keep in mind. What we're witnessing is a collision uh, of, of civilization and earth. And three factors that I just want to highlight here before we go. One is population explosion. If we take a look um, over time, this comes from the United Nations. At about the time of Jesus, there was about a quarter million people on this earth. Time Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, about 500 million. 2.3 billion, World War II, six and three quarter now, and it's projected out by 2050, there'll be over nine billion people. But where most of the population that is growing is within the developing nations, which then puts increased food demand on the developing countries, as well as growing demand for water, both for drinking purposes, for industrial purposes, and also for agriculture. Another factor is the scientific and technological revolution. Um, science has been wonderful. It's helping humans live longer. Communication has gotten a lot better. But if we keep in mind this formula here, old habits plus old technology equals predictable consequences. If we look at ancient warfare, you kind of use these kinds of tools to, to fight each other. You kind of have some predictable consequences. You know, those who kind of might be stronger on that day will win out. But when we got to World War II, something changed. All of a sudden, you add a new element into the formula, and we don't know what the consequences of such weaponry is, necessarily. We don't know what all the damage that would be done when they introduce that in. If we look at our farming, for a long time, much more simple methods, and then we increased. Our technology helped us increase with tractors. Um, shovels have, have uh, come a long way. They've gotten bigger. And they've gotten bigger yet. And uh, when you have big shovels, you can do things to the Earth's surface um, in ways that you couldn't with more primitive shovels. If we look at the fishing industry, we had basic nets to get the food that we needed over time. More recent times with technology, we're able to cast out big, big nets and catch everything that is there. And if we look at the fishing industry in the last half century, in terms of pre-peak, harvest peak, and post-peak, things have dramatically changed because of how our technology, um, or how we're using our technology. Irrigation is another thing. It's a wonderful thing, and we see this in our region here. But if we don't use irrigation wisely, what can end up happening is the water sources can dry up. And so this is the Colorado River that doesn't always make it to the sea um, each year. This is the Aral Sea in the Kazakhstan area. And um, it was drying up, and they put this ditch in there real quick, a canal, and anyways, they didn't get enough water in there, and so we have some ships landing there. Technology has also helped with some wonderful things, um, traveling uh, with cars and everything. But if we look at carbon dioxide emissions per country, we see that the United States currently leads the way, and China is not far behind. But this is from 2004. But if we look at this on a per-person basis rather than per country, here we see that the United States completely leads the way. And so if we think about China and all the changes that have happened in China in the last decade and a half, and if we think of them 
emitting the same amount of carbon dioxide per person as we do in the United States, um, that would not be a good thing. Finally, a third factor. Likening to a frog. A frog jumps into hot water, it knows to get out. But if we're sitting in water and it starts to heat up a bit, because we don't know what's all happening, um, some things could happen to that frog unless it's pulled out and rescued and having a good time. Um, there are three misconceptions that I want to highlight here um, before we head out. One is that isn't there disagreement among scientists about whether this problem is real or not? The debate on global warming is over, says Scientific American. Consensus as strong as the one that has developed around this topic is rare in science, says Science Magazine. If we look back at the last 10 years, the number of scientific studies dealing with climate change counted about 928. The number disagreeing that greenhouse gas pollution has caused most of the warming is zero. This was a secret memo that was leaked to the press. Reposition global warming as theory rather than fact. That's part of what's going on here in this country. And so we ask, have those people and those um, interests succeeded? Again, take a look at the scientific articles. Articles in the popular press then measure 636, and over half of those disagree as to the cause. And so no wonder we're confused at times. Um, do we have to choose between the economy and the environment? If we just take a look at our auto industry, um, this represents Japan and their emissions standard levels up pretty good, European Union, Australia, Canada, and then the US, we're, we're lagging down here. And then there's China. And so even our current cars, we cannot export to China because we don't meet up with their standards. California is trying to do some change right now. If we look at the change in market capitalization, now this is before, this is February 2008. Um, so the last year, it's a little bit different. But in terms of the auto industry, Toyota and Honda have led the way in terms of uh, emission standards, but then also recouping a, a financial benefit. CEO of General Electric, we think green means green. This is a time period where environmental improvement is going to lead toward profitability. This used to be controversial, but the science is in and it's overwhelming. We believe every company has a responsibility to reduce greenhouse gases as quickly as it can, says the CEO of Walmart. And then Walmart buildings are looking at doing some changes within their structures. So finally, Okay, if we accept that this is real and we're causing it, isn't the problem so big that we possibly can't fix it? And this is the image that I want to leave you with, that humanity already possesses the technology to do major, major change in terms of our wind energy, our solar energy, our cars that are changing. And in terms of our emission standards, going back to 1970, this is where we were, this is where we are now, and this is what it's projected if we don't change anything. But over time, with the technology and information that we already have, this is what we can do right now without new science and new things. But we have to put our minds to it, and we have to have some policies that support these kinds of changes. But this is what we can do right now with what we have. And for me, I take a lot of hope out of that. Thank you all very much for your attention here today. And again, welcome back. Have a good day.